Okay, so last week we went from Matthew 16.28 to Matthew 17.13. And that's what we talked about this statement that Jesus made in Matthew 16.28, that some standing there, he was talking to the disciples at this point in time, would not taste death till they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we saw that what he meant by that was that they would see what he would be like when he came in this kingdom. And we saw in Matthew 17, six days later, that they saw that. Some of them saw it. Three to be exact, James, John, and Peter. And so as some of the groups who have a false view of eschatology like to use this to prove other things, we see that it's not proven true. And we see that Peter's interpretation of this event in Second Peter 1, 10 through 19, confirms uh, this situation. So we interpret the Bible with the Bible. We don't isolate certain verses from the, in the Bible and impose our own doctrines upon them. We get our doctrines from the Bible and interpret scriptural words and scriptural passages with other scripture if we can. <clears throat> so we saw that uh, uh, he spoke with Moses and Elijah, and possibly that may be a fulfillment of what's going to come later on, that he, Moses will be the other uh, witness. Uh, and that we saw that what Jesus was speaking to Moses and Elijah about, something they had never, probably never knew about before, or maybe never understood before at least, that Jesus was going to die. So he talked to them about his gospel. And maybe that's what they're going to preach. We saw in Revelation, that's what one of the two, one of the things the two witnesses are going to preach. The, what, the, the, to fear God and to obey Him. And so they, they were preaching the everlasting gospel in the first three and a half years, the two witnesses were. And so maybe that's, maybe that's showing us that Moses is this other uh, witness. And then finally we saw last week that, um, <coughs> that uh, this Elijah, who is to come future, is not the same thing as Elijah who already had come, and they did it whatever they wanted to, which was John the Baptist. Okay, today we're going to read, we're going to finish up chapter 17. So let's begin reading in verse 14 and read to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> and when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. <clears throat> then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For surely I say to you, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? <clears throat> from whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. When you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Okay, let's, before verse 14 happens, let's go to Mark 9. And see uh, some things that happened before that in Mark's account. In fact, let's just read through all of Mark's account of the situation. 
because uh, he gives some extra details that Matthew does not give. So Mark 9, starting at verse 14. <coughs> When he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, What are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd and answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son, who has a mute spirit. <clears throat> and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples, that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered and said, O oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? He said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him, uh, him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and enter him no more. And the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. When he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Okay, let's go back to Matthew here. <clears throat> so we saw in Mark's account that before verse 14 ever happens, which is when the father comes to Jesus and asks him to cast the uh, demon out of his son, or to heal him, that Jesus came down, saw the great multitudes, and the scribes were disputing with his disciples, his other nine disciples. And notice he asked the, the scribes, uh, what are you discussing with them? And uh, we don't, they never answer. Uh, you don't really get a chance to answer, but we're going to talk about maybe possibly what they might have been talking about here in a second. Now what I want to focus on here just for a second is what verse 15 of Matthew 17 says. It says uh, he is an epileptic. Now the word epileptic in the Greek it literally means moonstruck. Okay, it literally means moonstruck. It's a word for moon in the Greek, and a word for struck in the Greek, and it's put together, it means moonstruck. Okay, so epileptic is not a translation of that word. Epileptic is something that the translators put upon, put it in here, but it's not a translation of the word. The word itself literally means moonstruck. Now, there is a Greek word, uh, epilepsia, which is the transliteration would be epileptic, but that's not the word used here. And the Greek word epilepsia, which would be transliterated as epilepsy, or epileptic, means seizures. Okay? So what the translators did here, I'm assuming what they did, is that they saw the, what was happening to this, this child, and they decided to say he is an epileptic. Okay? Now, I've, I've studied this a little bit over this last week, and uh, they've actually been able to show that the moon, when people who have epilepsy, the moon actually will cause it more frequency when the moon has more light reflecting from the sun, okay? So the brighter the moon is, the more frequency it is with epilepsy. They've shown this. Some of them are kind of disbelieving it because it kind of gives, uh, you know, credence to the word lunatic. Have you all heard of that word before, lunatic? We, and what's the first thing we think when we think lunatic? We think crazy person, right? 
But the word lunatic literally means moonstruck. That's what it means. Uh, Luna is the Spanish word for moon. Okay, I'm, I'm assuming it's probably the Latin word for moon as well. Uh, and if you go to your, the King James Bible, it will actually translate lunatic here. Which does keep the etymology of the word intact, because the Greek word means moonstruck. But it kind of is difficult in our modern uses, because lunatic doesn't mean moonstruck in our modern uses of the word. You say lunatic, you think crazy person. That's what you think. Okay, so the word here means moonstruck. And um, possibly, because the, the scribes were disputing with the nine disciples who could not heal this, man, this, this young boy, Possibly they were disputing with him about whether uh, this was just a natural thing that they had, that this boy had, and that's why they couldn't heal him, or whether this is really a demon-possessed thing. We don't really know what they're discussing about, but possibly that's what they were discussing about. And maybe that caused some doubt in the nine disciples. Because Jesus said the reason why they could not cast this demon out of the boy is because they didn't have any faith. But you know the ironic thing is that earlier on, they could cast out demons. They could cast, and just this one point they're coming to now, all of a sudden now, they don't have the faith to cast this demon out of this boy and to cure this boy and heal this boy. And so maybe the the uh, the scribes here were a source of doubt in the life of the disciples. And I want to warn you, friends. There's going to be religious people who even will call themselves Christians who will come across your path, and when you already know, God is telling you, do this. And something supernatural, something God has to provide for, something to do in your heart and in your life, and they'll come on and say, oh, you can't do it. And there'll be a cause for doubt in your life. If God has called you to do something, friends, God has called you to obedience, we know that from the general revelation of Scripture, God's called you to that. If someone comes along and says, you can't obey, don't let their, their words cause doubt in your hearts and minds. If God has called you to do something specifically, go somewhere, do something, Trust him for something. Don't let religious people come along who know not God, even if they profess to know God, and cause doubt to well up within you and to lose faith in what God said he will do. Because this is a supernatural thing we're talking about here. These, they can't cast it out in their own accord. Their faith has to be in the one who has the power to cast this demon out. And somehow along the way, I don't know if it happened when these these scribes came along, or it happened before them, these nine disciples kind of lost a little bit of faith and they didn't think they could cast them out anymore. Or maybe they're trying to cast them out in their own strength. But if they would have trusted in God, who has the ability to give them this strength, and who obviously wanted this boy to be healed, because who healed them eventually? Jesus did. They could have casted them out. That's what Jesus gave them a rebuke. Yeah, well, the demon itself isn't mute. That's that's the effect it has on the boy. Yeah, the boy is mute. The boy is deaf. And so, obviously, when Jesus is speaking to the demon, the demon is not deaf because the demon hears and obeys. And so, the boy is a deaf and the mute one, as Mark nine talks about there. So, it's obvious it had to have been a supernatural because the boy had no response to give here. Uh, so. But this, there's this epileptic thing here, and we, we, as I said, we've already, I've already uh, told you that the 
the moon or the illumination of the moon. These are things that can cause seizures. Um, some of you have a medical background, then you probably know a lot more about this than me, but, but light flashes can cause seizures. Uh, a TV flickering on and off too quickly can cause seizures. And so inside of our brain, we have electrical impulses going back and forth, eight, like about 80 times per second on average. And when someone has a seizure, it goes up to like 500 times per second. That's why your body gets so rigid, you start foaming at the mouth, you can't control what's going on with your body because there's something going on in your brain. Uh, and so these light flashes can cause these things, or too much illumination can cause these things to happen inside your brain. At least that's what I've studied. W would that be, sound correct, Sister Tabitha? So I, I think one of the reasons why, I'm just trying to think this through here, why Matthew might have used this word that means moonstruck here, is to show the people who are reading this gospel, reading his message to them, that whether the cause is a moon with a supernatural body up in the sky, or the cause is a demon, or the demon is using this time of the month to help cause these problems with this child, God, Jesus, has the power to deliver them and heal them from it. Okay, We know demons behind it, but why is he using this word moonstruck? I don't know. Uh, maybe that's what the scribes were saying. And they were trying to attribute to natural things. And so as we've talked about many times in the fellowship, we see these things happen. We have to realize that a lot of times when people have these things that we would call natural problems, they could be supernatural problems. But we must also conclude that that's not always a supernatural problem either. It's to be taken case by case. But no matter what the problem may be, supernatural or natural, Christ has the power to heal them. Where they literally are moonstruck, in that sense, or they're struck by a demon, whatever it may be, Christ has the power to heal them. And if God wants to heal them, it's his will to heal them, and we trust in God who has the power, he can do it through us as well. So this, this man was at, at, his, at his wit's end, I guess you could say. He was at a loss. His son had all these things, and as we saw on Mark 9, he confessed that this demon was trying to destroy his son. That's exactly what demonic force is, exactly what the devil wants, that he wants to destroy you. He hates you. He hates every human being that lives on earth. He's not the friend of anybody. He wants to destroy people. Uh, and who knows what, this, what became of this boy's life? Who knows what became of this boy's life? He could have grown up and become a gospel preacher. But there's always a potential for each person who the devil wants to destroy to become a preacher of the gospel, to become a on-fire Christian who wants to share it with others. And he sees that potential, and he wants to destroy, 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 because if they grow up and become what God wants them to be, they're going to turn around and destroy his kingdom by what they do. So the devil wants to destroy everybody. So they could not cure him. And then Jesus in Matthew 17, I, I believe he's talking to the disciples here. This is who I think he's talking to, because who did the Father bring the Son to? According to verse 16. I brought him to your disciples. And so they were the ones who lacked the faith. They were the ones who were trying to cast a demon out. So Jesus says, O faithless and perverse generation, 
How long shall I be with you? Not much longer. How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. So this word generation has come up again here. Because generation, our normal use of the word, means a group of people born at a certain point in time. Like we think baby boomer generation. Those are the ones who are born around World War II. We think uh, Generation X. Those are the ones who are born in the 90s and the, and the after 90s, you know. So we have these different generations. But the word genia here, which is being translated as generations, the first definition given in my lexicon, my Greek dictionary, is this. Those exhibiting common characteristics or interests, a race or a kind. So that's, that's the first definition given in my Greek dictionary. Those exhibiting common characteristics or interests. Well, those that are nine disciples. Common characteristics or interests. A race or a kind. Now, we, we, we saw last week, we looked at this, this one passage in Matthew where it talks about the, I tell you in Matthew 24, this generation shall by no means pass before all these things come to pass. And we saw the word genea there. And I'm as certain to you there that it was the race or kind of the Jewish people. But here, I'm as certain to you as talking to the disciples. I think in context what fits. Okay? So, the young boys brought the disciples, the nine disciples, they did not heal him. They could not heal him. And he called them a faithless and perverse generation. How long shall I be with you? So Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out of it. And if you go back to Mark 9 just for a second, uh, when the boy was brought to him, uh, let's see what the, the demon did in Matthew 9, 20. Then they brought the boy to Jesus, and when he, the boy, saw Jesus, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming at the mouth. So it's like, it seems like to me, this demon is doing a last-ditch effort to destroy the boy, because he knows what's coming next. He knows what's coming next. And uh, Jesus delivers the boy of the deaf and dumb spirit, or the deaf and mute spirit, and commands him to come at him, and, and here's the extra part here that's very important, and enter him no more. Because there was no sign this boy was repentant. This boy couldn't even hear Jesus. This boy couldn't speak at this point in time because he had a deaf and dumb spirit, which made him deaf and dumb or deaf and mute. So he couldn't even speak. Um, so we don't know what happened to this boy, but Jesus made it clear, don't go back into this boy ever again. So this, this rules out this demonic repossession that we talked about before in Matthew, where the spirit will leave, if it can cleaned out, and come back with seven more powerful than itself. Um, so Jesus took, and, and, then, and then, of course, the people thought the boy was dead. But think about that for a second. Jesus just delivered this boy from this demon that no one else could deliver him from. Do you really think he's going to let him die? I mean, the crowd should have thought to themselves, this man has the power to deliver him of this deaf and mute spirit that no one else can deliver him from. It's trying to destroy him is he really going to let him die? Because that's what the deaf and dumb spirit wanted to do him in the first place, right? If Jesus was really going to let him die, why would he have delivered him from the demon in the first place? And see, Jesus wants people to have life. So they can use their life properly for his glory. And so Jesus took him by the hand and rose him up. And he lived. And so and then there's this, this issue here where the disciples ask him, uh, why could we not cast out when they were privately with him? And he said, because of your unbelief. For surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you.
this is a, from what I understand, this is a proverbial phrase used in the Jewish nation, I think, even up to this day. Uh, you know, if you say it's in a mountain, move from here to there. It's just talking about something that's impossible. Jesus not literally saying, well, you can tell, you know, Mount Everest to go from here to there and it's going to obey you. Now, of course, if God wanted that to happen and he calls you to do it, you could do it. But it's just saying these impossible things, things that seem impossible, like driving this demon out of this boy, can happen if you believe. And, of course, on verse 20, you have to add this disclaimer, if it's God's will. That's what the whole of Scripture teaches. And people who believe that it's always God's will for you to be healed will take a verse like this and say, look, see, don't, don't say God's will be done at the end of your prayer. That's, that's lacking faith. No, it's not. It's, and when it comes to having faith in God healing someone, it's never a matter of whether he will do it or not. It's a matter of whether he has the ability to do it or not. Go back to Mark 9 for a second, and we'll see, once again, that's what it's referring to here. We see in Mark 9, 22, <clears throat> the father of the child is speaking here. And he says to Jesus, And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if, if you can do anything, so he's not having faith right now, if you can do anything, it's a matter of doing here, that's a matter of ability. He's questioning, well maybe, maybe you have the ability, maybe you don't, I don't really know, but if you can, Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. And then Jesus responds, is, if you can believe. Believe what? That he can do it. So it's a matter of believing in his ability here, not believing in his willingness. His willingness has to do with having compassion on us. But if you can do it, and if you can believe, all things are possible for him to believe. And he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And see, that, that's, that's really a very beautiful thing right there. Because he's admitting he does believe he has that little mustard seed because what Jesus reacts. He responds to his belief. A little mustard seed of belief there. But he wants more. And so if you ever find yourself lacking this faith that you need to accomplish something God's commanded you to accomplish, don't try to stir it up within yourself. I mean, you need to ask God to help your unbelief. That's the kind of prayer God will always respond to. Help my unbelief. Humility. It's very similar to the prayer of the Syrophoenician woman who cried out, who shrieked out, who screamed out, Help me, Lord. Help me. And so this man was desperate. And he wasn't willing to be, he wasn't ashamed of his desperateness. He did it before this great multitude of people. And after he cried out that, you saw in Mark 9, they all came running. They all came running. So he was actually put on display. The brother John was talking about a minute ago before he started singing the Revelations on Halloween. He, he longs for a day when everyone would just sing openly, not care what people think. Well, that's the way we should be singing now. It shouldn't take that day to come for us to sing openly to God and not be ashamed of his gospel. Because if you're ashamed of his gospel and his words now, what will happen when he comes in, the, in his glory of his Father and his angels? He'll be ashamed of you. And so I look forward to that today. Praise God that we'll all be in unison that day. Now we're all in these different nations, tribes, and tongues, and people all over the place of the earth, but one day we'll all be together. And we'll sing this great song of the sound of mighty waters all singing in unison, with one voice, what the Lord has done for us. But he wasn't ashamed. 
And this man, who's not even really a follower of Jesus Christ, he's just looking for a healing from Jesus Christ, is willing to not be ashamed for the sake of his son, who is about to be destroyed by these demons, just physical death. Why should we be ashamed when we're crying out for God, for our Lord of Lords and King of Kings, who has shed his blood on the cross for us? Why should we be ashamed when we're talking about eternal destruction now for the sinners? So this is a great picture of how we should take it a step further. Oftentimes, we'll talk about this fireman situation where the fireman is saving someone from physical death and so on and so forth. But this man is crying out for his physical son who's about to die a physical death and be destroyed by these demonic forces within him. And he's not ashamed before the multitudes of people to cry out for his son. So we shouldn't be ashamed to cry out for people who are on their way to hell, for God's son, and cry out for him. And verse 21 is a very interesting statement. Uh, you won't find it in the NIV or the NASB or the ESV. This verse is taken out of the manuscripts behind those Bibles, verse 21. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, if this verse is meant to be in the Bible, what a thing the devil has done to take it out. And if we even were to go to the Mark 9 passage of this, in verse 29, where it says the same thing, the part that's taken out in the manuscripts behind the NIV, ESV, NASB is the end fasting part. And so if this is really supposed to be in the Bible, what a thing the devil has done to take it out. They get you to not pray and fast or get you just to pray. But God actually wants you to pray and fast. And so we need to have this in our mind because when we go to places that are very wicked like Belshire or Mardi Gras or these demonic places where we run into people all the time, and we go there and we can't cast a demon out of someone or we can't get them to go away, what we need to have in the back of our mind is, you know what? Today or tomorrow, I need to pray and fast about this. And if this kind of demon comes back again, I'm prepared now. Because certain kinds of demons don't come out but by prayer and fasting. Now, why is that? Well, I, I really don't know the answer to the question. Um, we've talked about fasting and prayer in this fellowship before. We did the whole teaching on it from Matthew 6 where he talks about uh, when you fast, not if you fast. Um, if you wanted a good picture of fasting and prayer and what it does in the spiritual realm, go to Daniel chapter 10. And you see, he prayed. He prayed for three weeks, praying and fasting. And at the end of those three weeks, the angel came to him and said, your prayer was heard from the beginning, but I was held up by this demonic force, and finally I've made it to you. And so when you pray and fast, you're, you're engaging in spiritual warfare that you can't see sometimes, that you have no idea what's going on sometimes. But God has seen fit to give this power to deliver people from certain demons or to take power of certain demonic forces through prayer and fasting. Okay? So if we go to these places and we see these demons and people, we, we have no ability to control those demons or to cast them out of them, we need to have this in the back of our mind. Well, maybe this is the kind that doesn't come out by prayer and fasting. Or maybe we're having the same problem the disciples had. We're lacking faith. And that faith in my own ability to cast out faith to, you know, this, these guys being possessed. Well, what, what did I see that one guy do who delivers people from demons? What, how, what words did he say? Uh, what were his specific words? What were his movements and motions? And It's not about that. It's about having the, the faith in the one who gives you the power. And if that doesn't work, and you, you, you check yourself, you know you have the faith to cast it out, and it's not working, then it's 
one of those ones that comes out more and faster. That's what we need to conclude. But, you know, this, this has become such a uh, thing that's looked on upon as this special thing that, you know, this one guy out there, what's his name? Uh, you know who I'm talking about, brother. Bob some. What's that? No, it's, it's it's the guy who has like a radio program. Uh, Ray Comfort put uh, a audio clip of this on his one of his CDs a while back. No, it's not Bob Yard. I can't remember the guy's name, but he he's been on like TV programs and stuff like that, and and he has this whole ministry of delivering people from demons. And uh, he'll do certain things, touch their head, you know, these little things that he does to. It's like it. By doing these things, it automatically comes out. Well, I don't, I don't see that in the scripture. Um, so it, it's a matter of having faith in the one we shouldn't. What's going through our head when we see demons of people should not be, well, I need to think about what that one guy did, what his movements were, what his motions were, or the words he said. No, it's about having faith in Christ. And of course, we we need to consider the state of the person. If they can respond, whether they're willing to repent or not, we always need to consider that when it comes to demonic repossession. Okay. So what what a what a thing the devil has done if this is really supposed to be in the scriptures, as I believe it's supposed to be, and he's taken it out. In verse twenty-two, now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, "The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him." And the th- and the third day he'll be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. So I want to focus on these, these four words here. Uh, and they will kill him. Who is it that will kill Jesus? The Jews. Okay. Who, who's the they here will kill him? The Jewish people, the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish leaders. Yeah, the Jewish nation. Uh, all those answers are correct. We got the the Gentile nation represented with Pontius Pilate, right? Judas, Judas is involved. Very good. All these people are involved in the day. They all had their part in uh, killing Jesus. What's that? The demons had a part. Oh yeah, the demons had a part. And the Jewish nation were offered Barabbas by Pontius Pilate. They rejected it and clung to. Uh, to him and said, let Jesus be killed instead. But I want to go to Acts, uh, and I'll show you what I'm getting at here, Acts chapter 2, because Calvinism, Calvinists would have you believe that, you know, this is all God behind all of this. And I, I want you to see, not only from the verse I just read in, in Matthew 17, 22 and 23, that the people who are given the responsibility for killing Jesus is not God. The people given the responsibility for killing Jesus are the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, the Roman nation via Pontius Pilate. These are the people who are given the responsibility, the accountability for taking Christ's life. Now, of course, God and Jesus both had a part in this, but we'll see what their part was here in a second. Uh, Acts chapter 2 in verse uh, 22. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words because of Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by 
by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So they see this thing where he, were, where he was delivered by a determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And they'll, they'll say that God was the one behind these people working through them to do uh, what they did. In other words, they had no control over themselves. God's determining this. He's predestining this. And so on and so forth. Now God did, at, through his foreknowledge, determine to have Christ put to death. But the question is, in what way did he do that? Now, we've, we talked about this, I think, many times in this fellowship, how uh, there's been many times, you see this mostly in the Gospel according to John, how people wanted to kill Jesus many times before they actually did. They wanted to stone him. They wanted to throw him off the cliff. They wanted to lay hands on him. They were always plotting and planning how they might kill him. And they were never successful, were they? Somehow Jesus would kind of escape. He'd get away. And they wouldn't be successful in doing so. So, how did God have his hand in determining this? Well, first of all, he sent his son to the earth at the very time he sent him. Um, because all the prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, if they weren't fulfilled, then now we have them becoming false prophets and God's word not being true. But God determined a certain time, a certain place, and a certain people that Jesus would come to, as Romans says, at just the right time. He sent his son at just the right time. So he sent him at the right time, and we see that all throughout his ministry, he's protected by the Father. Protected, protected, protected. But then what does he cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's a quote from Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, if you were to read the next a uh, couple of sentences after that, that's actually Psalm 22.1 being quoted there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a messianic psalm here. You can see it all throughout. This is talking about the Messiah. It says, right after that, it's still in verse 1 of Psalm 22, Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. So in what way did God forsake his son? In what way did he deliver him to the people? Well, first of all, he delivered him by sending him to them. By giving him the words to speak, telling him what to preach. And he knew by preaching those words how the people would respond. And we've seen throughout the Gospel according to Matthew how they've responded. The religious leaders, religious people are responding in rejection, rejection. You have to see these miracles and signs and wonders. They reject, reject, reject. And then just those parables. Now they're just confused. Now they have no ability to understand because they're not coming to him for extra information. They rejected what they saw before. So now he said a judgment upon them through parables. And now they're just rejecting and rejecting because they don't even understand anything anymore because he's speaking to them in parables. And so that's all working towards this one determined purpose of God, that his son would shed his blood for the remission of sins. That all the people of the world could be saved through the sacrifice of his son. And he protected his son, protected his son, protected his son, and guess what? they were just getting more and more angry. As they couldn't kill him, and he kept doing things that made him angry, it just built up and built up and built up. Because preaching the truth has two, uh, two effects, possible effects. One, humble someone, leads them to the truth. Number two, they harden their heart and continue to harden their heart, and they get more and more angry and more and more violent. So the gospel has a hardening effect, depending on how someone responds to it. 
It has a hardening effect as well. So they continue to harden their heart, harden their heart, harden their heart, until finally, God finally takes his hand of protection off of his son. Judas finally betrays the Lord and Savior. And finally, he's put into the hands of lawless men. And that's what Acts 2 says. And so we see in Acts chapter 2 that we see both sides of the story here. That Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So lawless hands were the ones that came for Jesus. Lawless hands were the ones who beat and bruised Jesus. Lawless hands were the hands that crucified Jesus and put him to death. Lawless hands did this. And so we see this, this truth in, in Matthew 17, the scripture we just looked at. Um, let's go to Matthew 16, 21, a verse we just read recently. And I'm going to show you, script after script, that shows that the disciples are the ones, or the, the uh, Jewish nation, and the Romans are the ones who are responsible for these things. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, to his disciples, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. So he suffered many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Those are the ones he's going to suffer under. Matthew chapter 20, uh, verse 18 and 19. <clears throat> Jesus speaking here. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. So the chief priests and the scribes, Jesus was delivered to them by who? By Judas. They delivered him to the Gentiles, the chief priests and the scribes, but who basically, I mean, in the, some sense, delivered him to Judas? It was God the Father. By taking his hand of protection off the Son and allowing them to arrest him. Not causing them to arrest him. By allowing them to arrest him through taking off his hand of protection off of his Son. And so the chief priests and scribes, they delivered him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. So who mocked and scourged and crucified Jesus? The Gentiles. The Gentiles is this. So we see that in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, we saw that in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Acts 2, 36. It says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So we see in verse 36 that they crucified Jesus. In Acts uh, 3, in verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is Peter speaking here, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. So Pilate was determined to let him go. The Jewish people brought him to him, the scribes, the Pharisees, Sanhedrin brought him to him. He was denied. And then in verse uh, 14, But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of whom we, which we are witnesses. So who killed the Prince of Life? The Jewish people had their hands upon it. In fact, when 
Pilate is talking to him about this issue and willing to release Barabbas to them instead, they said, no, we want Jesus to be crucified. He says, my hands are free from his blood. He said, let his blood be upon us and our children. And so the whole nation is saying, yes, put him to death. Oh, they, that's there anyway. I mean, the whole nation isn't there. But the Jewish people were saying, we want to put him to death. And so they're all taking responsibility in this. Uh, then we see in Acts chapter 4 and verse 10. Peter speaking to the Sanhedrin here. Let it be known to you all, and to all the people of Israel, by the that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. So we see that they were the ones. They are responsible for crucifying. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 30. We see Peter uh, speaking again. The God of, your, of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. So we see that the, these people are the ones who are responsible for putting Jesus to death. The part that God the Father had in it was sending Jesus, giving him the word to speak, knowing how the people would respond, and finally taking his hand of protection off of him and allowing him to be crucified uh, for the remission of our sins. And the disciples were exceedingly sorrowful, uh, Matthew seventeen twenty three says. Exceedingly sorrowful that he would be killed. They still didn't understand this raising up from the grave thing. And uh, we see that in Mark nine thirty two. They still didn't understand all of it. And we saw that in Mark nine ten from last week. They didn't understand this rising from the dead and what it means. But they were exceedingly sorrowful that he said that he would be killed. Not, not one of them dared to rebuke him this time, huh? Uh, they didn't want to be called Satan, like Peter was. Uh, they just were submitting to it and they were sorrowful over it. Okay, Mark uh, 17, I'm, I'm sorry, Matthew 17, 24. When he had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Now, the word temple is not in the Greek. Okay, you can see it's in uh, italics there in your Bible. Uh, but the word translated as tax there means double drachma, which is the exact amount someone must pay, one person must pay for a temple tax. That's why they translate it. So that, that's, I don't see that as a problem to add that word in there to make it clear to people. Uh, but, I mean, you could have just put double drachma there. You could have put that instead. But they, that was, and, you know, Peter said, yeah, we, my, my, my rabbi pays this. Uh, and when he comes in, he gives him an analogy. Now, when a king is a king over the whole land, uh, does he tax the subjects or does he tax his own family? The subjects, okay? Strangers doesn't mean someone who's from a different country, although they would tax them if they came into their country too. Uh, it simply means that they're not taxing their own family. That's what it means by the word stranger there. Someone that's not in their immediate family. And so what he's saying here is this, is that uh, this temple, which we're receiving tax for, whose house is it? It's supposed to be the Father's house. So what are they taxing me for? What do I need to pay a tax for? I'm the son. I don't get taxed for the Father's house. 
And um, this is a really interesting situation here because he just told them. Now, Jesus wasn't a part of these ones who he said, you, you faithless and perverse generation, because Peter was up on the mountain with Jesus, as were James and John. When he said that to the disciples, he was saying to the nine disciples in verse 17. Uh, but here he is, after saying that they lacked faith, he's testing Peter's faith. Because it takes a lot of faith to go to an ocean, cast in a hook, or whatever he did to, yeah, it was a hook, okay, uh, cast in a hook, and expect there to be enough coin in there to pay the temple tax for two people. Yeah, well, it's called a strata, which is, that's what the word is. It's called a strata. Uh, it's, it is the, the exact amount needed. It's not called quadruple drachma. But it, it, is the, it is double the double drachma. Yes, that is correct. But it's called a, 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 uh, a stator or a strata, something like that. Stator. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Um, which is the exact amount of the temple tax for two people. Okay. Uh, but it takes a lot of faith to go to the ocean. Um, you know, why couldn't you just... The normal way is to go earn some money and to get it and go pay it. But Jesus said, no, Peter, go to the ocean and... Uh, you know, casting a hook, and when he comes up, the fish will have a, uh, a couple, some coins in there for us to, to pay the, the temple tax for both of us. It takes a lot of faith to do that. To even go to the ocean, to cast in a hook, and then to believe that a fish is going to have coins in it? Come on. Come on. Yeah, that, most people would not do that, but Peter did do it. And he, and he, he found the coin there. Well, Okay, it doesn't say that here where he, that he found it. Well, I thought there was another account that said he did go do it. Nope, I don't think so. This is the only account that says this in the Bible, this, this situation. There may be something else that says that he did do it, but this is the only, uh, this is not a Mark, it's not a Luke. Yeah. So, uh, but but I'm assuming he did it. Uh, I mean, I, I hope he did. I would assume that he did. And he says, take that and give it to them for me and for you. Uh so there's silence on the issue. But but think about all the things that had to happen for this to come true. Peter had to first of all go there, had to cast in the hook. There had to have been a fish who God told to go swap a coin. Some it probably someone probably dropped the coin in the water. That's probably what happened. Someone came in fish came and swallowed the coin up, and then God directed that fish right to the hook. All these things that have to happen. And think about all the repercussions of this happening. You're admitting that God is the God of the fish, that this is Jesus who is speaking to me. He's the God over that fish in the sea, who he's not near. He's the God of the coin, so he gets the, either he finds a coin to be dropped in there, or he gets a fish to come and swap the coin. Or maybe he makes a coin just coin disappear out of nothing in the fish's mouth. Uh, but lots of great faith that must be required and involved in this. And so, and the coin, the the temple tax is for the. Uh, it's payable for the maintenance of the temple by every male who is 20 years old or older. So even though Jesus is supposed to be free, he was willing to submit to this uh, for their own good. And oftentimes we ought to, we ought to be that way as well, is that uh, you know make concessions for people in order, not sinful concessions, but concessions for people to, in order to keep the peace between us and them. Things that don't necessarily have to be done, but could be done in order to keep the peace. And that will be a witness to them. And uh, I imagine that Peter did go to this, and if, if he would have brought it to them, do you think he would have testified to them? 
And what, what a testimony that would have been to these people who are looking for Jesus to pay the temple tax, but he didn't have to pay in the first place because he's a son. It's his father's house. Imagine what kind of testimony that would have been against them, that, that, this, that this is the way Jesus and Peter paid for their tax. They didn't go out and earn the money. They just got out of the fish's mouth. All right. That's about it for now. Does anyone have any uh, questions or things they want to add or objections? Good question. I mean, a lot of these, from Mark 9, from my understanding of epilepsy, he, the boy had a lot of the things that naturally happen with epilepsy. Um, seizures, foaming at the mouth. Now, trying to destroy him, that's, not, I don't, that's natural with epilepsy. That's a demonic thing. He's trying to be destroyed. Um, but uh, I guess maybe that would be one way of knowing. If, if the epilepsy is trying to destroy the boy, moving him towards a fire, moving him towards water, that's not you know, guard it off, but he can be drowned, uh, then you can probably see there's something behind because it's natural. Natural, dumb things, things that have no intellectual being behind it, would not try to do that. Uh, so that, that's obviously one way you can tell. But other than that, I, I'm not sure there, you know, is a natural way to tell. Uh, I have to trust in God that he'll reveal it to us. And, um, well, I, I guess another way that you can tell this boy is that he was both mute and deaf, too. I don't think epilepsy makes you mute and deaf, actually speaking. It does cause you to have seizures, maybe fall with the mouth, um, even knock you out. But I, I don't remember any of these things being associated with it. You know, blind, deaf, and being caused to be cast into a fire. So that's one way you could tell with this boy. But uh, other than that, I'm not real sure. It's something you have to just discern and pray. and Unless someone else has something else they want to add to that. I mean, I, I, I've had encounters with demonic people, and I've heard demonic people, they usually speak, and their voice changes a lot. They'll have a guttural voice. Sometimes um, they'll go back and forth with different voices. And so, different personalities, yep. You can oftentimes tell the difference between someone who's the actual person speaking, that's the demon speaking. Uh, the things they're saying, too. Sometimes things that they're doing to themselves even. Yeah. Uh, that guy in, in Nashville when we were down there, uh, I think that was July 4th, it was a big long piece of wood, splinter of wood. He's picking his tooth with it. He's all up and carrying his face. And the guy's got he's got wounds all over him there. And I'm praying the Lord to find him and it took a while. And but he was just shoving this piece of wood in between his teeth. Anything destructive to to a person, yeah. like cutting themselves, that's a demonic.
and went back to prayer about him again. And, uh, but when he came back, he didn't say anything either, just walking, pacing around carrying Yeah. Yeah, he was pedophile. Yeah. He was asking Brother Pat if he could touch the children. Yeah, remember he wanted to touch faith too. Yeah. And that guy wouldn't go away. That might be one of the prayer and fasting ones. The police escorted him away one time and came back with a pajama top on or something. It was really strange. Or like a uh, like a hospital gown. Like they had, it was like they took him to the emergency room and checked him in, checked him out. He didn't change his clothes. Huh. It was weird. And, uh, but he came back. He was there the rest of the day. Yeah. It was really strange. And, uh, yeah. so. they, they will they will openly confess who they are. Right, a lot of times. Yeah, and then sometimes they'll, I've heard him say, uh, I remember one time we were in California, we were starting an evangelism boot camp, and uh, they were talking to this one guy, and he, he said what his name was, and he said, uh, he was like a 20-year-old young man. He said, I'm, I'm thousands of years old. I've been around since the foundation of the world, he said. And so it was obvious that he was some kind of demonic thing behind him, because the boy wasn't that old. Uh, and so sometimes they'll say things like that that you can tell from the person speaking. It's a kind of demonic force that they're speaking. So for a boy here to have this time, yeah. especially I mean, this time, uh, there's times of ranking principalities right. powers just the force. It's one of the worst ones. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Um, yeah, I thought about that a lot for this this passage in Mark nine, saying it from childhood, um, and we have to be careful because we can't read into why we don't know why, but from the rest of Scripture we know that uh, I don't think God would allow demons to enter into a child who has not either they or their parents. I mean, it could be their parents are letting this these things happen to them, you know. Uh, that's difficult to, to deal with, but uh, parents can influence a child in a bad way. And quicker. Right. You're understanding these things at an earlier, earlier age, and then you're more susceptible to these things at an earlier age. I mean, when I was like nine, ten years old, I used to play with Ouija boards. And so these are things that, uh, you know, it doesn't tell us why or how. 
And obviously, if, if his father wasn't involved in any way, his father seemed to be remorseful over it, at least. And um, But I, I don't know why this happened to this boy or what age it happened. To, but I know from the rest of Scripture, we can't assume that this happened against the boy's will. Um, uh, I, I would assume, because at such a young age, that his parents should have some kind of thing to do with it. Yeah, Jewish people all throughout the Old Testament worship false gods, turned aside. So, but you got to keep in mind these these things are dangerous. The, the spiritual world has something to, has something to play with, to mess around with. Well, I just got a little curious one day. Your curiosity is going to kill you. I mentioned a Ouija board because when I was six or seven, maybe five, and my aunt uh, and uncle and my grandparents. Introduced me and my sister to the board one night and we played with her friends. And uh, so that's definitely demonic. Oh, yeah. There. And I uh, wasn't running no balls for them to do that. Uh -huh. And uh, they did. And uh, then there you go. I mean, it could be, could be zero cards, could be a Ouija board, could be. I don't know what. what and earlier the better for him. Mm -hmm. Earlier the better. Yeah, I've been seeing this picture on Facebook about this uh, Ouija board box. It's from Toys R Us. Pink and it says for little girls. Right on it. Ouija board for little girls. And so they're going to be accountable for that, man. And it says exclusively at Toys R Us. Is on it. And that's something to be proud of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got these tracks. That I, I don't think I have any more of them left. But this track of a—it's a picture of a guy looking to a crystal ball. It says, "Want to know your future?" Top of it. And it, on the back, it talks about how you know if if gypsies or whatever could really tell the future, then they'd be waiting around for you to come to their place and give them fifty dollars for for an hour. They would know the lottery numbers. They'd be getting lots of money, and so yeah, yeah. I said, "You really want to know the future? Where are you going to be three hundred years from now?" Yeah. You're going to be in the grave, and your soul's going to be one of those parts of Hades. And so that, that something like that would be good to do, putting those Ouija boards. Because that's just disgusting. Yeah, probably, especially right now. Yeah. If you think about those are being bought as gifts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right now. So sad. Yeah. Part of my, my life was just talking to me about when you go to toys, it's interesting because you just were talking about it. Going to toys or us, just yesterday. Yeah. You go to toys or us. Well, if you go, let me know. I might have some of those tracks left. I can give them to you. You can take them with you. Put them in there. Well, you know, I was thinking about the verse where Jesus talks about the, these little ones. The angels. They're angels. Right. Always before the Father. Right. So, I think there's mercy, you know, like when you were a little one playing with 
know I had when I first was saved, I was with this like discipleship group and they were uh, they would go out sharing the gospel. Um, and there was a, a one girl that would come occasionally and they were they were they were sharing with her relationship and she there she was a friend of the sister in the Lord. Right. And she would come to the meeting for Bible study and they would kind of role play how to share the gospel with people and stuff like that on the street. And she would come and she would be one day like dressed feminine. The next, another day she would dress all in like black leather and, and she would have different she'd be different, different personality and and, uh, and the one sister was telling me that she came, she came out of Satan with her family. She grew up, she grew up, she witnessed being sacrificed and she witnessed, I mean, she, her family was very, very deep into it. And so she has many personalities. Yeah, when she was a, when she was little, she'd have to just kind of these personalities came, and I thought, you know, at some point it became demonic uh, for her, you know, possession maybe or strong depression, where she would have these different personalities to kind of escape the terrible things that she was witnessing. She would go off and you know she was witness, witnessing such terrible things, and so she had all these personalities. But there was different personalities that wanted that wanted to be saved and weird stuff. And they, they would be sharing with, with, they didn't know who they'd be sharing with at different times. Huh. It was very, very strange. Huh. But um, there would there'd be times where she'd, wanted, she'd want to leave, um, like around Halloween, around that time, and she'd want to leave and go, you know, and, and, and do, do around those real practices and different statements type activities. And uh, the Lord would stop her. You know, she'd go to the door and then, or handle, she couldn't get it undone, or hot, huh. or something like that. And, huh. But it was, she grew up in that from a little child, mm. and uh, so, but you talked about different personalities. So she had, they labeled her multiple personalities. Schizophrenic. Yeah. yeah, disorder, whatever. But so the little ones, you know, definitely can be affected. Yeah. In the start, I was oppression at first, at least. Yeah. And then once they understand what's going on, and of course, either way you go, whether you're exposed to Christianity early on or you're exposed to these other spiritual, you're going to become to the age of accountability a little earlier because you're exposed to these things that you have to be able to understand eventually if you're exposed to it enough. And so both ways, you're in danger. The danger of not submitting to God and the danger of becoming demon-possessed and involved in that in some way. So... Yeah, it's, uh, Matthew was on medication before he came here. Supposedly being ADD. Sorry, not anymore. Amen. Say no medication. I have a question about, uh, about the atonement and, mm -hmm. and the... Uh, Predetermination uh -huh. and uh, going to uh, Luke 22 22. Uh -huh. uh, let's 
If you truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, the Lord to that man by whom he is betrayed. Yep. So obviously it shows two different parts of the same thing. Right. One that God has determined the Son of Man to come and die this way, mm -hmm. um, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed into the hands of lawless men that you were bringing up the teaching. Mm -hmm. So again, it gets, it gets back to this, this issue. This, this, I think some Christians are, are, uh, are maybe, maybe ignorant about this. And God foreknowing it, they'll say, well, he, he did it by his foreknowledge. Right. And we have the fighters to Lucifer and every, every event in history. But because of his foreknowledge, he predetermined it and he foreknew it, he could have stopped it. That's, but that's presuming that he would want the control of the universe that way. Mm -hmm. Presuming that. I'm going to, uh, to, to John chapter... concerning all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he is read with me and puts up the deal against me. Excuse me, Judas. Now, <clears throat> in the same, same issue, the same dilemma, seemingly, that God has chosen his disciples, and here's his chosen one, which we, we believe and we, we thought us that Judas was filled with the Holy Spirit, he was chosen by Jesus, he cast out devils, and here he is uh, fulfilling scripture uh, by his choice to betray Jesus. Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of quandary here. As I, trying to, I don't exactly know what my question is, but uh, I, I just I'm trying to understand how how we talk about this different kind of thing. Yeah, 18, verse 18 is referring to uh, it's a scripture quoting from da uh, David in Psalm 41 uh, referring to Ahithophel who was his trust servant, it's a parallel fulfillment, so it didn't have to be fulfilled in Judas, but it was fulfilled in Judas. Um, and the word may be fulfilled there, may be is in the subjunctive there, so it's a matter of possibilities and probabilities. So uh, if Judas would have never come along and betrayed Judas, there wouldn't have been any scripture that was not unfulfilled from our perspective. Because God knew Judas would come along and do what he did, that's why scripture was fulfilled. Uh, it's a parallel type prophecy fulfillment something that had fulfillment already in the Old Testament. It does not mention Judas by name. It not mention one of the disciples. It's a parallel type prophecy fulfillment. It parallels the situation that happened in the Old Testament with David and his servant, Ahithophel. Okay, so, um, but this issue, once again, what the part that God had in is this. This is the determination that God was involved in. Uh, he sent his son to Jewish people at a certain time, to a certain people, he gave them the message to preach. He knew how they would respond. He protected them, and eventually he lifted his hand of protection off of them. That's the part God the Father had in it. God the Father did not determine Judas doing what he did. And we saw earlier on in Matthew 10 that Judas was a true disciple at one point in time. And he became a devil, as John 6 talks about, which is about six months to a year later on. Um, and so him removing his hand of protection, it's not like he lacked... Calvinists, it's almost like they think that God had to make people crucify Jesus. He didn't lack people who wanted to crucify him because of the ministry he had. A preaching the truth. So the whole world hates me. That's why their books are evil. So 
he continued to preach God's truth, God's message, these people continued to respond wrongly. And then with the parables added to it. And so this is the part that God had in it. God did not make them kill Jesus, did not move them to kill Jesus, did not inspire them to do this to Jesus. They did it all of their own accord because they hated the truth and they hated Jesus. And God sent them to just the right people at just the right time where he knew this would all happen. Okay? That's, so God determined that his son would come into the world and that these things would happen, but he didn't determine the action of the people who did these things to him. He just had foreknowledge of these things. And by his stripes we can be healed. Isaiah 53. And so, th and people get confused because Isaiah 53 says that uh, he was... Uh, yeah, Septuagint is completely different by Isaiah 53. Uh, but even if we were to submit to this being the right text for it, it can be interpreted properly, I think. You know, verse 4, smitten by God, re it really is saying smitten of God. And it says, we esteemed him smitten by God. So the people are looking upon Jesus, who is barely recognizable now, and saying, man, he's smitten by God. So that's the people's uh, perspective of what happened to Jesus in Matthew, I mean, Isaiah 53, 4. Uh, yeah, Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Or to crush him. Um, in what way did God crush the son? By taking his hand and protection off him, letting lawless men beat him and bruise him and crucify him. And scourge him, as it says in Matthew and in John and in Acts. And so, it's the same situation. In, in the video I did about this, it's, it's likened to, to David and uh, Uriah. Or not to David and Uriah, but the situation there with David and Uriah. Now, did David literally kill Uriah? No. Did the general who David gave the command to literally kill Uriah? Did the soldiers who stepped back literally kill Uriah? The people who literally killed Uriah were the enemies. They literally killed him. But David was called a murder. Um, and the people who stepped back from Uriah, they took their hand and protection off of Uriah, and therefore he was killed. So in some sense, you could say about these soldiers who stepped back and obeyed this wicked command of general, this wicked command of David, the king, and step back and allow their fellow soldiers to be killed by the enemy, you could, you could say of them that they bruised him. And so in that sense, the Lord bruised him. In that sense, he was smitten of God or smitten by God. It wasn't that, as the Calvinists would try to say with their view of atonement, that the bruising here is God pouring out his wrath upon his son for the elect. And nowhere says that in the scripture. They assume that from these texts because they come to the text with their atonement view in hand. And it fits their tulip, limited atonement, unconditional election, etc. It fits their, their, their doctrine perfectly. But we see the reason why it pleased the Lord in verse 11. Um, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. That's the reason that it pleased the Lord, to allow these things to happen to him. And keep in mind, not only was the Father involved in this, Jesus was involved in this. Because he could have called in legions of angels to protect him if he wanted to. So he was involved in laying his life down. He didn't have to lay his life down. So even he had an involvement in him being bruised and beaten and scourged and crucified. Because he laid his life down. <clears throat> so, all these people are involved in this, but the people who are always blamed throughout the scripture for literally doing these things to him are the sinners. God is never blamed. And somehow the Calvinists think they can have it both ways. 
that God predestined them to do this, and yet they did it, and therefore they were responsible for it. That's not the way it works. God had a predestined purpose and a plan for Jesus and what would happen to him. But he didn't orchestrate the people to do these things. The only way he was involved in orchestrating was by sending Jesus, giving the message to preach, knowing how they would respond, and finally taking his hand protection off of them. That's the part he had in it. Yes, it is. It wasn't like, oh yeah, I gotta lay my wrath out on someone. <laughs> I'm pleased now. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like that. Yeah, this is the fruit. He's pleased with this. It kind of parallels with with Hebrews 12, it says, for the joy that you form, you endure the cross. Yes. That's the joy. That's Jesus. That's the joy. Yes. Just like the Father, pleased the Father to crush him. Right. There would be fruit to please the Son to endure the cross. To allow himself to be crushed. Right. Yes. And then they had their their like like a homeschool session where they had all the Calvinist pictures of the Calvinist yeah. teachers. They had Spurgeon, they had John Gill, they had Jonathan Edwards there. I didn't stop the video and look at all of them, but those are the ones I, I remember off the top of my head. I saw John Gill, I showed his up close a little further, and he saw his name. I saw Jonathan Edwards, I could picture him anywhere. He's got the roll, kind of rolls in his hair. I saw Charles Spurgeon, I saw John Calvin. He probably had Theodore Bays up there, which is John Calvin's son-in-law who took over for John Calvin. Um, you know, I, I didn't really see anybody else that came on top of my head. But but they're consistent Calvinists. I mean, yeah. thank God, not many Calvinists are like them. Thank God, because they would be hell bound just like the Westboro Baptist Church is hell bound right now. And I, I, in that documentary, I still see hope for some of them. Some of them still have a conscience. Like at that fourth part, some of them were still crying for that those unbelieving uh, videographers yeah. who had come and filmed them from Europe somewhere. And they were still, and he, and the guy saw. He said, "Well, well why, why are you crying? Shouldn't you be rejoicing in God's judgment? Shouldn't you be rejoicing in God's judgment? Because that's what they say all the time: we rejoice in God's judgment. And when God's judgment finally happens, I will rejoice. But if someone's still alive and they have a chance to be saved, I'm not going to rejoice if something bad happened to them. Right? I have no pleasure in that. When, when God finally casts people into hell, I will take pleasure in it because it's His righteous judgment, and I, it's His job to do that." But if they're still alive right now, I take no pleasure in it. I want them to be saved, just like he wants them to be saved. But you can see that, that there's a confliction going on there, and that some of them have even left. And my, my fear, I was telling Angela this morning, I said, one of the most horrible things, I always said it was last night, one of the most horrible things about this whole situation, these people who have left them, don't stay Christians, they become apostate. Like that one girl, she's living in sin, you can tell. The way she's dressed with things, she's got pictures of Elvis in her house. And, um, but the other girl seems yeah, I'm not sure what's going on with her. I, I kind of searched her out a little bit on the internet to see what she's up to now. She's married now. I don't know if she's living for Christ or not. But You're talking about the one that was scared of going to hell. Yes, in the workout gym. Yeah. 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 And she's married now. She still lives in Kansas. Yes, they did. Yeah, the, the mother was just like, whatever he said. She didn't really want to answer the questions. So there's still hope for some of them there. 
they'll come out of that. And, uh, Well, then they'll, then they'll probably break the scriptures and let and the and the surely would be the teacher then, because none of the men are stepping up to be a teacher. Most of them are in that group are pretty much cowardly. They don't even go out in their outreaches. It seems like except for that one guy. Most of them go out in the outreach. None of them are speaking to the camera. It's always the woman speaking to the camera. So, it's probably gonna they're probably gonna have to find some way to twist that and, and surely can be the she's the main spokesman for the group. She can be the next teacher. Yeah, he he's the only guy. Yeah, he, he wasn't he wasn't originally part of the family. I think he was, he was a media guy. He came reporter that right. came there and was converted and married one of the daughters. Yeah, yeah. He, he's one of the daughters that left. I think his daughter, uh, I mean the Phelps' daughter, mm-hmm. that married him. Uh, maybe a satisfaction there is what's part of his conversion. So hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I'm wondering, have, have you ever talked to any of the brethren that have been out preaching in the Um I actually did an evangelist seminar in Topeka, Kansas. And uh, the, fa- the pastor of that church, the father of the guy who invited me to that church, he knows them. He's known them for a long time. Uh, and they were a real good friend for a while because the Phelps, if you know their history, they were really big in uh, civil rights. They were really big in that movement. So that all the uh, all the black people in that community really liked them and looked up to them for a long time because of the, how they helped them with their civil rights in the situation in the big Kansas. And so uh, one time they actually stood out and protested out in front of their church. And then they re- then the pastor came out with his wife and they realized whose church it was. Oh, we're sorry. We, we didn't realize this was your church. And um, It was because some woman who was going to that church was involved in political action that was on the side of homosexuals, and, and so Fred was really against that. But, uh, you know, the Phelps children went to the, the school that the pastor's wife was a principal over. So this family knows the Phelps family very well. I even have a picture taken out in front of the church. Um, so they used to be, they used to have their head screwed on right. Um, but when this thing happened in this one park in that community, where I guess they found homosexuals doing indecent things after dark, uh, the Phelps came against it and the city ruled against the Phelps in favor of homosexuals that's when it all started to go downhill that's when they started getting crazy yeah the bitterness you can see it yeah and there's really a lot of bitterness there for some of them really a lot of it I've run this one online I believe I think so yeah it sure sounded like their name their title their profile is all about about them, they talk a lot like them. They're not like a, like a wicked music video talking to people in front of the YouTube video. They're just born to be a king of the gospel and preacher. They're a good church. 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 They're a good Just recently. Yeah, originally they had lost seventeen million dollars. Originally, that was the original decision of the lower court to 
to this this father of this soldier who had died. They lost 17 million. It was appealed, uh, and they won the appeal. And then it went to the Supreme Court, and they won that. And so, yeah, if they had lost that, it would have been a real blow. Yeah. I do understand. I have to with the families. Thank God for dead soldiers, is not the gospel. But you know, they're just like the Calvinist God who hates people unconditionally from eternity past, some to heaven, some to hell. And so they're just like that God. They're really a reflection of what that God is like. They're consistent with what that God is. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I think the question becomes, though, is that did God move these people to do these things or not? I, I don't think we can say that, unless the scripture actually legitimately says explicitly that's what happened. Um, uh, and some people who even God brings to bring judgment upon, they could go f too far with it, further than God wants them to, because they have free will. But it could be, this, I mean, I don't know this for sure, I haven't looked at that situation you're talking about Luke 20, but um, it could be simply the same thing. God has had his hand protection upon the Jerusalem and upon these people. Lifts it off. Whoever wants to come, come do it now. The same very yeah, and that would be God's wrath because he's taking his hand protection off of them. Yeah. Right. Wipe it out. But he, he, but he didn't make the false prophet come. So, so you see these things happening. Um, the world is full of wickedness. The devil is the prince of this world. So there's no short of wickedness in here. And we'll, we won't know until we step into eternity how much God protected us from these things when he could have allowed wicked men and wicked things to do these things to us. Exactly. That's what I was referring to. Cyrus, too. You know, Cyrus was named before he was even born. And so, uh, 
I think it says in that passage that, that God actually brought him. To, he put a hook in his mouth or something like that and brought him there. But, but that doesn't mean that he caused him to do every single thing they did in that city. You know, raping people, killing babies. You know, that doesn't mean that God caused him to do those things. Um, so he, he may have brought him there, but, but we, we can't say that God is the one behind these wicked actions. That's where the Calvinists go too far. They would say foreknowledge or God not doing anything about it makes God the one who makes them do these things. But at the same time, God is not accountable for their actions. Exactly. And that's why they take it too far. But they have this conundrum here where they'll say that, but they're not willing to admit that God is responsible for it. And that's where I have to break with them. That's like the top line of, that's like the very contradictory top line of like the Yes. But not in a way where he's going to author of sin. You know, they're all born sin, but he's not the author of sin. Well, that's right. The right. The and that's the foundation of Calvinist theology. The very foundation of it. And so the, those who are going to say that, they're being inconsistent, and there is some agreement there that I believe there's a predestination, a predetermining going on here, uh, but it's a disagreement at how far it goes. And... Uh, it's just he's the ultimate sovereign power. It's kind of like you have like a lion then you have God throwing a chicken in the lion then while he allows it to happen. If it's a chicken around there, the balance that okay, well, it's allowed to happen. That's a weird way of looking at it. But ultimately, God had control. It's more like throwing lambs to wolves. Because Jesus is a lamb who was slain. Yeah. And he's a lamb amongst wolves, and he's amongst these wolves, and he gathered some more lambs with himself, and, and then eventually let the wolves attack. And then the other lambs were scattered. There were 11. So. But they take it too far. And then when they take it that far, they're not willing to admit the logical consistency of how far they've taken it. Yeah, I've actually got a few things interesting. Uh, on Greg Bonson's video, somebody posted the whole clip of the whole debate. Debated a little bit on there about using presupposition against uh, Calvin. I've got two messages now asking how it's possible. So people are actually interested in this. Be, I think you'd be surprised to start to book the right and take you on it. That's good. That's good. I've got to keep that in mind. So I've got two messages on that. I've got to explain to people how to use it. Good. Well, I don't like Calvin because I like the message. 